I read an, um, an article a couple years ago, I think it's been now, uh, that talked about, uh, uh, talked about movies, and it actually talked about um, the rise in superhero movies. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you uh, turn the television on, you watch previews, it seems like every month a new kind of superhero movie is coming out. They're making this huge industry on superhero movies. So what this article tried to do is it tried to examine why, why, are, why do we have all these superhero movies? And, and what it discovered was that, that uh, the rise in these movies really coincided with uh, the wake of the events of September 11th. And what the article proposed was uh, because of that event and its effect on our society and our culture, it has made us really long for simple stories where good triumphs over evil, hence the rise of superhero movies. But what the article also uh, noted or, or made mention of is, is how superhero movies have changed uh, since 20, 30, 40 years ago. Superheroes 20 or 30, 40 years ago were all kind of white knights that stood for good and truth and honesty, and they were kind of flawless characters that we idolized. But now, in these movies that are coming out now, they're, they're portrayed more like you and I. They're portrayed more like people that have people problems. And, and what the article noted is that the trend now is to, to view these uh, superheroes in their flawed humanness. And I thought that was really interesting when I, when I read that article years ago, but I also thought about it a lot this week as I looked at our passage, because there is no greater story probably in all the scriptures than, the, than about a flawed hero than the story about Samson in the book of Judges. Samson was uh, one of the most well-known judges. He's the one we probably know most about, and he's been uh, immortalized in, in children's stories. We read stories to our kids about Samson, but the real Samson was actually far different than the one that we read our kids, uh, read stories to our kids about. In fact, I'm pretty sure that if all of us knew Samson, we certainly would not let our kids hang out with him. For sure, because of this flawed character. If you look in the book, uh, four chapters actually are, are devoted to uh, the character of Samson. But what we're going to look at this morning is actually how his life ended. So I'm going to read uh, from Judges chapter 16, and I'm going to read verses uh, 23 uh, to 31. It starts this way. Now the Lord of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women 
who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he'd killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtel in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you uh, for your scriptures. We thank you for <coughs> their power in our lives to change us, Lord, and uh, and the way they shape our souls. Even these kind of wacky, crazy stories that we read about uh, in the Old Testament have great benefit for showing us uh, what a life lived in relationship with you looks like. So, Father, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to, to kind of cut through all the noise and the busyness of our lives uh, to be able to see your goodness, to be able to see your greatness, to be able to have our hearts softened and changed by your word here this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. If you've been with us over the, the past uh, couple weeks, you know uh, that we've been studying through uh, the book of Judges, and it's been uh, a wild ride to, to study through this book of Judges. Uh, if you've ever read it in the Old Testament, you'll know it's full of, of stories of kind of, of violence. Uh, uh, it should have a rated R rating if it was put into movie theaters. It's been uh, quite a journey to do this book and to preach through it. And if you've been with us, you'll know that the, the key to understanding the book of Judges has been to understand uh, a cycle that repeats itself all throughout the book. And the cycle always starts with the people, God's people, the nation of Israel, falling into some sort of sin. They look at the nations all around them, they become attracted to those nations and their gods, and then they fall prey to it. And they begin to worship these foreign gods, and they begin to forsake God and go their own way. And then God has to send them a wake-up call, and He sends it in the form of servitude, in which they are uh, conquered or bullied by the gods or the lifestyle of the nations that are all around them. And after a season of servitude, after a season of being bullied and oppressed, they finally cry out to God in supplication. They cry out to God, come save us, come deliver us from this state. And then God sends a deliverer, and he or she was often one who brought salvation to God's people. Now, even though these are all historical stories, as we've seen, we really do believe that they happened in time and space and history. They're not just mythic stories. Even though they are historical stories, they still do represent things to us. They represent the simple kind of realities of life and the sinful patterns that that you and I often get stuck in, time in and time out during our lives. And we've chosen to study this book during uh, the Lenten season for a a particular reason. Uh, If you've looked at church history at all, you'll know that Lent is a time where people, uh, it's it's called a season of repentance or a time when people begin to kind of look at their lives and and take stock of their lives and, 
and come to terms with the, the grip that sin often has uh, in our lives. And we seek to, to kind of turn or forsake that grip or the controlling and powerful influence of sin on our lives. But sadly, by the end of the book of Judges, really repentance is nowhere to be found. It's far from the mind of God's people, and it is especially far from the mind of Samson, who is the hero of our story. The, the Samson narrative starts in, in Judges chapter 13, and it tells us where it tells us that God's people had been kind of controlled or, or oppressed by the Philistine nation for close to 40 years. And God, even before the people cried out, God says, I'm going to send you a deliverer. I'm going to send you a rescuer. And he identifies Samson as the one who is going to rescue this people. And he identifies Samson as that from the moment of his birth. You see, Samson's life is like many other lives that you read about in the scriptures. It starts with a a, a miraculous birth. Uh, Samson's father, Manoah, and his wife were barren when an angel of the Lord came to them, visited them, and told them that they were going to have a son, and he was going to be a special son. And the angel told them that, that when this son was born, he was supposed to be a Nazarite, or he was supposed to take uh, the Nazarite vow. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll know that there was a, a very special vow that could be taken by God's people called uh, the Nazarite vow. And if they took this vow, it meant that their lives would be uh, set aside as different. They would be set apart and they would have a different set of kind of behaviors and practices that they would engage in because they had taken this vow. They couldn't cut their hair uh, they couldn't drink, uh, drink alcohol or enjoy some of the things in life. They had unique dietary rules they, that had to protect them from all sorts of, of uncleanliness. They couldn't come in contact with, with dead animals. They had all these different rules that were supposed to set them apart as unique in God's eyes. And in Samson's case, this vow wasn't just unique because of the vow, but it was unique because because of it, the, uh, Samson received a unique strength and a courage from God. And what's interesting about Samson is even though he was supposed to be different because of this vow, you learn that as he grew up, he found every possible way in the book that he could to break this vow that was supposed to define his life. If you want to understand Samson, you have to understand that he was a man, simply put, that was addicted to sex, food, and violence. And this was Israel's hero. That's how you understand him. In Judges 14, you read about Samson uh, finding or seeing a Philistine woman and telling his parents that he must have her. He was driven by lust and, and had to have her as a possession And this was clearly against God's design. God was very clear that he wanted his people, the nation of Israel, to only marry within the nation. But that wasn't good enough for Samson. He saw a woman, she caught his eye, and in in lust and intensity, he must have her. He wanted her completely. So his parents placate him, and, and while they are going to uh, to retrieve her 
from the Philistines, there's this interesting story about how uh, uh, Samson intercepts a lion that he ends up killing with his bare hands. A few days later, he comes back to the carcass of the lion and he's hungry and discovers that a, a beehive was created in the carcass of the lion. So he pulls the beehive out and eats the honey from the beehive. In the process, he, he gets caught in some sort of crazy riddle, all uh, in connection with this Philistine woman. And in the process, he ends up murdering 30 people in a fit of rage and anger. It doesn't get any better. In Judges 15, uh, we, we read that, that the fact that his wife was given uh, to another man, and this angered Samson. So in his hot anger and rage, he catches 30 foxes by their tails. He takes torches and ties, their tails, uh, on, uh, ties the torches onto their tails and sends them into the town in order to destroy the entire economy of the town. The town decides to retaliate. So they get Samson's wife and her father-in-law and they, the townspeople burn them. And then Samson, not to be outdone in terms of retaliation, then re-enters the town and kills everyone, probably about a thousand Philistines with his bare hands in the process. It gets better. Judges chapter 16 comes along and we find that Samson continues uh, with his womanizing. He finds a prostitute. He goes into a prostitute. Uh, His life is almost taken Uh, while he is uh, wasting his time with this prostitute. And after that, he goes on to another woman, and he marries a woman named Delilah. If you've ever seen the old Cecil B. DeMille film uh, about Samson and Delilah, you've heard this part of the story. Delilah is another foreign woman who ends up seducing Samson, cutting his hair, and taking away all of his strength. And Samson is defeated. At that point, The Philistines, who he's battled all throughout his exploits, come in, they capture him, they gouge out his eyes, and they take him to prison, and they chain him between two uh, poles so that he can begin to entertain them in this temple of this foreign god. So as you read all these chapters, a picture becomes very clear about the nature of who Samson is. He is the ultimate flawed hero. He's one who was supposed to be set apart to God, but instead he was defined purely by his narcissistic passions that he could never seem to completely satisfy. And what's so interesting is the fact that Samson is the judge in this story makes it pretty evident just how far God's people had really strayed from their relationship with God. And in some ways, what the scripture writers are doing or what even God's doing in their midst is he's showing them Samson's life and showing them that this is is a parallel story to the ways that they are living their life. His life is a mirror to God's people about how they were behaving. I've often read one time that if God's put someone in your life that consistently annoys you time and time again, He's probably putting a mirror in front of you as to how you are living your life. Because the people we are most intolerant of and their flaws are probably the same flaws that exist in our own lives. 
And that's exactly what God is doing to His people. They were supposed to be defined by their unique relationship with God, but instead they were chasing after lesser things, just like their leader Samson was. And it reminds us that, that the ultimate hero in the book cannot be one of the judges. The ultimate hero in the book of Judges isn't Samson, it isn't Jephthah, it isn't Deborah or Othniel or Ehud, all these judges that we've looked at. The ultimate hero of this book at the end of the day is God and God's faithfulness. In fact, the entire book is one big case study in the faithfulness of God in the midst of his people's radical unfaithfulness. Each chapter, you begin to wonder if the people have finally done it. They've finally gone too far, and now God is just going to wash his hands of his people. But consistently throughout chapter to chapter, God remains faithful to his people. In fact, this idea of the faithfulness of God isn't just something that's communicated in the book of Judges. It's actually all over the Scriptures. The Scriptures are full with instances of the faithfulness of God despite the unfaithfulness of His people. And one of the common metaphors that the Scriptures use to define the faithfulness of God is the metaphor of a marriage. You and I, when we get married, we we stand at an altar, and what are the things that we say? We, We say vows at the altar, and we say for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. And, and we, we pledge our faithfulness despite what the tests in life might bring us. And life sure does bring tests time in and time out. I remember uh, seeing this probably most vividly uh, uh, when I was a kid uh, growing up in my house. Um, when I was very young, probably about uh, 10 years old, uh, my grandfather came down with, um, with an Alzheimer's-like disease. Uh, one of the saddest things about my life is I never actually got to know my one grandfather when he was actually right in his mind. And he was actually a, a remarkable man who had done a, a remarkable amount of things. But just when I was starting to become very impressionable and I was starting to remember things, uh, he was actually starting to lose his memory. And he actually battled with, with Alzheimer's for, for over 11 years before uh, it finally took his life. So what I, but what I do remember uh, in that is I remember how faithful my grandmother, my grandmother was to my grandfather. Every day she would catch a bus from Roland Avenue right uh, around the corner from here. She would catch a bus. She never got a license. She never learned how to drive. So she would either catch a bus or do the walk all the way down to, to Keswick Avenue and visit him every, pretty much, I think, almost every single day. And every single day she'd walk in and he wouldn't remember her. Sometimes he would become agitated with her and frustrated with her. And, but yet, despite all of that, she remained faithful, not just because she had stood at an altar and made a vow, but she remained faithful because she loved him. Friends, the moral of the Scriptures is this. If you are Christ's, then He has made a powerful vow to love you, and He remains faithful to that vow. 
You see, the book of Judges shows this to us in very vivid, radical, and dramatic ways. Because the book of Judges shows us, just beautifully shows us, the faithfulness of God in the midst of the most rebellious of circumstances. It shows us that we serve a God who is faithful to us. But it also tells us something really remarkable about God and something unique about the way he tends to do things. Because it also shows us that God often chooses weakness to be the occasion for the greatest of victories. God often chooses weakness to be the occasion for the greatest of victories. You see, when our passage opens, Samson has really hit rock bottom, right? His life uh, has finally caught up to him. He's been, uh, he's been arrested by the Philistines. His, his eyes have been gouged out. He's fastened between two poles in a pagan temple, and he's told that he has to entertain the Philistines in this process while they look on him and mock him. This is the lowest, most darkest, saddest chapter in his entire life. And what's interesting is in that moment, we finally hear Samson pray. Now, I'd probably have to go back and read the narrative again, but I'm pretty sure this is the only time in the Samson story that we ever hear about Samson praying. And in that moment, he prays that God would strengthen him just one last time. He even uses, he becomes a good theologian in this awful moment. He uses three different names for God, Yahweh and Adonai and Elohim in this prayer where he prays one last time for God to give him strength and God in his faithfulness graciously answers his prayer. He listens and answers his prayer and gives Samson the strength to bring down this massive temple. Some commentators think that 11,000 people were probably killed in just this one instance. I think the key to the whole Samson story comes in verse 30, in one sentence in verse 30, where it says this, So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. You know what the writers are trying to get at? The writers want us to see that Samson's greatest victory came in his weakest of moments. And friends, when I read that, I think of, the, I think of a picture of the very gospel itself. Because just as Samson's arms were stretched out that day, so were Jesus' arms stretched out and nailed to a cross. Just as Samson was mocked mercilessly by the Philistines, so Jesus was mocked and spit upon, not just in the cross, but as he carried that cross all the way up to the hill at Calvary. You see, Samson's greatest victory came in his weakest moment. And what we learn from the gospel is this, is that Jesus' ultimate victory over sin and death came in his weakest moment. Because in his weakest moment, he took the punishment that you and I deserved so that we 
could experience freedom from the slavery of sin and death. If you've been with us, you know that Judges is an incredibly dark book. We've seen gross sin all throughout the book, and we've seen the book just get progressively worse and worse as we read on. And if you continue to read through the book of Judges, God bless you uh, through the Lenten season because it just gets worse. If you keep reading in the book of Judges, uh, you see this wild instances, this instance where uh, all the tribes break out in a, a civil war over an instance over a gang rape. And, and in the end of the day, they war against one of the tribes and completely eradicate one of the tribes. It only just gets worse. But Samson is, is the last of the judges in the book. He's the last judge, and he's the last in the line of generation after generation of imperfect judges and imperfect rulers. Ehud was one of those judges. He was a left-handed man, and we talked about how because of that he was viewed with suspicion in the ancient world. Deborah was a woman who was a judge and would have been considered to be second class in the ancient culture. We saw Gideon, who was full of all sorts of doubts and fears, and at the end of the day, his addiction to worshiping idols won the day. We read last week about Jephthah, who engaged in human sacrifice, thinking that this was what God wanted. And of course, this morning we read about Samson, a man who was addicted to food and sex and violence. All of these judges were incredibly imperfect people. They were incredibly flawed individuals, and they are meant to leave us longing for something more. They are meant to leave us longing for the more perfect judge, the more perfect deliverer, and the more perfect rescuer. Towards the end of his life on Palm Sunday, the Gospels tells us that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He knew that when he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey, he was riding to his death But nobody else really understood it that day, and they all shouted celebrations and hosanna as he entered into Jerusalem because they believed he was a king who was coming, that he was that rescuer that they so longed for ever since even the days of Judges. And Jesus was entering Jerusalem to establish a new kingdom. He was a king coming. He was that perfect judge, that perfect rescuer coming. But his kingdom would not be accomplished through strength and might and power. Instead, his kingdom would be accomplished through weakness, through him offering his life for you and for me. Friends, the Easter season tells us that Jesus is that perfect judge. He is that perfect deliverer. He is the very thing that our hearts most need and most long for. He is our perfect deliverer. And because of that, this Easter season, the gospel is good news. Let's pray.